0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you have problems with rust on surfaces you can't protect in a tool chest? Are you wondering what a saw rest is? Do you struggle with the proper use of reference surfaces? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 34 of the show for September 12th, 2018. So my introduction is going to be a little bit different this week. Before I start today's show, uh, I just want to take a minute to remember all of those who were lost all too soon due to the events of September 11th, 2001. And while they deserve our thanks and recognition every day, I also want to specifically thank all of our military personnel, state and local police, firefighters, EMTs and paramedics, and all our other first responders who've all chosen to serve the rest of us in what is unfortunately all too often a very thankless job. So thank thanks to all of you for keeping us safe and providing us all with the all of the freedoms and privileges that we enjoy and often take for granted in this great nation. I'd also like to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Your su- support helps to keep the show going. So if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So a lot of activity going on around here lately. I have uh, finished a new workbench, and I posted some pictures of that over on Instagram if you're interested in that and checking that out. Uh, It was just a, a pine workbench made from... what were essentially leftover boards and beams uh from building the log cabin. So uh I was able to salvage a lot of extra four by tens and, and six by six pieces uh to make this bench. So uh if you're interested in that go ahead on over to Instagram and check out my uh my posts over there. Uh I'm also this week in preparations for uh finishing up preparations for a private class that I'm gonna be doing this weekend. Uh, and it should be pretty interesting because we're, uh, expecting the remnants from hurricane Florence to be coming up through, uh, South and North Carolina into Virginia where I am. Uh, we're probably just expecting a good amount of rain. I don't think we're going to get too much of the winds. Um, maybe a little bit on Saturday, but, uh, we're probably going to have a lot of rain over the, uh, the next few days. So, uh, we'll see how that goes. We'll be uh, doing a hand tool class in uh, in the basement of the cabin. So uh, even if we lose power, we should be okay. I've got some natural light down there and uh, hey, it's a hand tool class, right? So we'll, uh, we should be just fine. Uh, and then in terms of cabin progress, I know some folks have been asking me how it's going. Uh, we have just recently ordered the hardwood flooring for the cabin. Uh, the rest of September, we're going to spend spend trying to get the uh, outside sealed up. I've still got a little bit of uh, caulking and and sealing up to do out there. So we're going to try and finish that throughout the rest of September. And then hopefully in October, I'll be uh, installing hardwood flooring and cabinetry in the kitchen. And uh, maybe by Christmas, we'll actually be in this thing. But that's what's been going on in uh, my neck of the woods over the last few weeks. So let's get into our questions for this week. Our first question comes from patron Jay Darenthal. Jay says, I, I have cut and plane all leg stretchers and rails and top slabs for a split top or bench. And I went about cutting my first mortise, joining the front stretcher to the right front leg. I noticed that each of my legs is slightly different in width and height maybe off by 32nd of an inch. Does this matter if the prime design goal is to align the front faces of the leg stretchers and top edge? Also, I'm building the bench with Southern Yellow Pine from the big box store and found that trimming the end grain portion of the mortise is particularly difficult. I'm struggling with knowing if the chisel is square to the leg surface while I'm cutting the mortise. I check how square the cut is with a small combination square after making a few cuts but wondered if you could offer any advice on cutting these two inch wide by three inch high by one inch deep mortises. Alright, so the first part of Jay's question has to do with slightly different width and height of the legs. So when I prepare stock for something like this, like a table, um, I don't typically make sure that everything that all the stock is milled dead perfect um, beforehand, unless it has to be for some particular reason. Um, What I will usually do is plane the two joinery surfaces first, because these are going to be my reference surfaces, and I'm actually going to talk a a little bit more about reference surfaces later in the the main topic of today's show. But for something like a workbench leg, um, the two surfaces that are the most important are going to be the two surfaces that receive the tenons from the stretchers, Um, at least in in this design that that Jay's building, the, uh, the Rubo design. So those are gonna be the two most important surfaces to get flat and square to each other, are those two surfaces where the tenons from the stretchers are gonna join in. So I worry about getting those two surfaces flat and square and then I cut my joinery and I dry fit everything. Then after assembly, um, the the side of the leg that's going to be underneath the bench and not accessible um, after the bench is assembled, I'll plane that with a smooth plane just to clean it up. It doesn't need to be perfectly flat. It doesn't need to be square really to any of the other faces. It just needs to look pretty because it's not serving any other function. It's, it's not um, a reference for joinery. There's no joinery gonna join that leg. It doesn't need to be, you know, you're not planing that flush to any other surface. So it doesn't really matter that, that side part the, of the leg the front portion of the leg is going to be flush with the front of the bench after assembly. And the easiest way to do that is to assemble the bench and then plane it flush afterwards. Now if the leg is grossly oversized um, and it you know it sticks out past the front of the bench by you know a quarter or three eighths of an inch, then I would say you may want to try and hog off the majority of the material before you assemble the bench. Um, but if it's just you know a thirty second of an inch, I would go ahead and assemble the bench before I did anything to that front surface of the leg. And then once the bench is assembled, plane the leg flush to the front of the bench, plane the the leg flush to the stretcher if the stretcher is is sitting below the leg, um, or plane the stretcher flush to the front of the leg. Um, But I wouldn't worry too much about it. You really just want to make sure the the front face of the leg is square to the front face of the bench. And then it's plain flush afterwards. So um, I wouldn't worry about you know a difference of a thirty second of an inch or so um, in dimensions of the legs. And the same thing with the height. Um, you know, just like with a, a table or anything else. Um, and I actually just did this with the bench I just finished. Um, when it was done, I flipped the bench over after assembly. Um, I left all the legs oversized, several inches oversized, in fact, before assembling. And I referenced, I I did all my measurement for where my mortises were going to be for the stretchers off of the shoulder um, of the mortises that were going into the top so that they would all be in the same place. And then after assembly, I turned the bench on its top. I used a ruler to mark up from the bottom surface of the bench, I marked up to the legs, Um, you know, roughly, I don't know what it was, maybe 30 inches or 29 inches or something like that, and marked those legs so that my finished bench would end up at about 32 inches tall. So then I marked the the bottoms of the legs, and then I cut them all the length after the bench was assembled, and that made sure that all the legs were the same length, even if the tenons were a bit different length on each one of them. Um, It made sure at least that the bench was going to sit flat on a flat surface. Um, So I wouldn't worry about things being a little bit off before assembly, because typically you're going to adjust that after assembly anyway. Um, And the legs don't need to be all exactly the same, you know, with, um, if they're a 32nd of an inch off, no big deal. As long as the reference surfaces, the surfaces that are going to receive your joinery are flat and square to each other. And as long as your stretcher shoulder to shoulder distances are the same front and back and side to side. Uh, then it won't be an issue if the legs are off. As for the second question, um, having trouble cutting the ends of the mortises square, the easiest way to do this, especially with big mortises, is to create a a chopping block or a paring block. What this is is just a a scrap piece of wood, like maybe a 2x2 or something, you know, inch and a half square roughly. um, And you plane it flat and square on two adjacent faces. The other two faces don't matter. Um, you need two adjacent faces that are flat and square to each other. You put one of those flat faces down on the surface where the mortise is going to be chopped and the other surface, the other square surface gets lined up with the baseline of your mortise. Um, You chop out the majority of the waste freehand and when you start to get close to that baseline, you can put your chisel right in the baseline and you can hold it flat against that pairing block. And you can chop down that pairing block and it'll help you to chop perfectly straight up and down. Um, you can also use it for pairing later on. If you're taking off really, really thin cuts, um, you can just hold the chisel against that pairing block while you push down on it to pair off the last little bit. Um, and I actually did show this again on Instagram um, in a quick video on Instagram. Um, I used the block for pairing the mortises on the underside of my own bench. Um, and in fact, um, I didn't even clamp it because of what I was pairing, I was pairing white pine. Um, and essentially I was really just too lazy to clamp it. So, uh, but I wasn't taking off a lot of material where the chisel would have a tendency to push that pairing block backwards off the baseline. Uh, if you're going to chop, or if you're working in very hard or dense material, uh, you'll want to clamp that pairing block or chopping block to the surface before you go ahead and, uh, and reference the chisel off of it, but that's an easy way, you know, for for really big deep mortises to uh, make sure that everything comes out nice and square, uh, and the walls are nice and flat, and it'll help to ensure that your legs don't uh, kick off at a at an odd angle when you go to assemble everything later. Our second question comes from Jason Vocal. Uh, Jason says, I'm now a big fan of the podcast. I have a garage shop on long Island where there's lots of humidity. started keeping my tools in wooden boxes with plans to make more at your suggestion. Recently organized my wood, keeping only decent material and discarding the junk. And even followed a tip you gave about sawing and aligning my eyes better. And it worked immediately. But now I have a question. I noticed my vice starting to get some rust on the handle and the bars. I can't box it up. What kind of tricks or maintenance do you recommend for fixing and preventing the rust from ultimately uh, ruining the vice? So, um, surfaces that you can't put in a toolbox or, or in some kind of case to keep the moisture off. This is becomes an issue, uh, you know, in in really humid areas. I'm really struggling with it this year myself um, in my basement shop. Uh, my wooden vice screws on my. Old uh, English bench actually warped and seized almost to the the point of immobility at one point, and the planing stop in my English bench actually swelled and seized up at one point, and I couldn't couldn't move it even with really heavy hammer blows. Um, and I'm getting you know surface rust on things that uh, even things that are in my tool chest are, are getting some surface rust here and there that I'm having to deal with, uh, but. You know some of the machines that are out in my and and power tools that are out in my garage. um, You know they're having issues, and and tools that I leave out tend to get a little rust on them. So, so what do you do? Well, if you can't put the tools away and protect them, um, that means you need some type of product essentially that's going to form a film between the metal surface and the moisture that's in the air. Uh, The most common are some you know some type of oil or some type of wax, um, or some combination thereof. There are products on the market, um, I think one is called Bow Shield. Um, A lot of these are are meant for storage, long-term storage. um, And some of them are pretty gummy and pretty thick and pretty sticky, uh, at least the ones for long-term storage. I wouldn't suggest using those because they're really not meant for everyday um, protection of those surfaces. Um, instead I would look into some type of oil or some type of wax. Now, most oils, uh, that you are going to use are going to be some form of mineral oil. Um, if you look at like three in one oil, it's essentially mineral oil that's thinned down. Um, honing oil that's used on oil stones is essentially thinned mineral oil. Um, and a lot of these oils are essentially thinned mineral oil. So the easiest thing to do is go to the, the drugstore or go to the pharmacy section of your grocery store or big box store and pick up a bottle of mineral oil because it's cheap. It's, you know, a couple dollars for a huge bottle of it. You can thin it yourself with a little bit of mineral spirits if you want, um, or you can use it full strength. I will often put it in an oil can and just use it full thickness. Um, and just put a little bit of that on uh, the surface and wipe it down with a rag. And that will keep, that thin film of oil will keep, will, will form a, a separation between the metal surface and the moisture in the atmosphere. And that will help to prevent rust. The problem with oil is that it tends to attract dust. So it's fine on a lot of um Iron and steel surfaces. You know, if you've got a, the, a table saw that's getting a little rusty, you could put a very thin coat of oil on it. And the mineral oil is really not going to affect. Um, it's not going to affect finishes on wood and things like that, because half the time you're going to sand it off or plane it off anyway. But the problem with the oil is that it, it tends to attract dust, um, and this can be a problem, especially in mechanisms because like it, like a vice screw, because that dust then starts to gum up the vice screw the the mechanism, and you start to get a lot of gunk built up inside the vice screw and and it gets sticky and you try to open it or close it. And it gets to be kind of a pain in the butt. So another option is wax, um, a furniture, any kind of furniture paste wax will, will work. Um, Renaissance wax is you know, a wax that is used by restorers, uh, refinishers, and and it's great for metal surfaces. The problem is it's really expensive, but it does work really well. Uh, but any furniture wax will work. A butcher's paste wax, a, a minwax, finishing wax, Johnson's wax, anything like that. Where you would just take a piece of steel wool or a soft rag. Um, if you've got a little bit of surface rust on the surface, on the, on the part, You can apply the wax with steel wool and it'll help to get that surface rust off as well as apply the wax at the same time. And then, um, you know, you just, once it it hazes over, just give it a a light buffing just to buff it all off and it'll help to lubricate the vice screws. And because it's a, once it dries, because the wax is typically hard um, and dry, because most of those waxes are a mixture of like carnauba wax and, and pretty hard waxes, Um, once the wax dries and the solvent flashes off, it leaves a pretty hard waxy surface behind and it will wear off in time. You're going to have to renew it from time to time, but it will at least, you know, put some type of thin film barrier between the metal surface and the moisture in the atmosphere and help to slow down the formation of rust. Eventually, um, you know, If you don't maintain that surface and reapply the wax and clean the dust off every once in a while, um, it will still rust. So you're going to have to maintain it. Um, Another thing you wanna do is to keep the dust off all those surfaces. Dust attracts moisture. So if you are in a very humid environment and you've got a table saw surface or a metal vise screw and you leave it all dusty, that wood dust is going to attract the moisture from the air and hold it against those surfaces. And that's going to accelerate the rusting process. So cleaning your shop, you know, vacuum the dust off those types of surfaces um, and wax them. And, you know, these are all things that are going to help to slow down the formation of rust. If left unattended and unmaintained, all these surfaces are going to rust. Um, So there's really, you know, there's nothing you you're going to be able to do. That's a one shot deal and it's good forever. You're going to have to maintain Uh, but I would say probably wax is going to be your your best bet Um, there are dry lubricants like graphite lubricants and things like that Um, they don't tend to really prevent moisture and inform that film they're really more lubricants uh, for for mechanisms and screws and things like that Um, so I find that the wax on the metal surfaces tends to do a bit better job um, than than those dry lubricants wax can can uh, attract dust as well when it's dry it's not as big of a, an issue the dust will actually blow off the surfaces once the wax is dry but the uh when the wax is still tacky and drying it can attract some dust but you're going to you know you should be buffing off that haze and the, the dust anyway and try to keep the surfaces clean of dust and uh, I think that's about the best you're going to be able to do and you know, keep inspecting your surfaces and maintain them and reapply that wax when you start to see little spots of rust. Clean it off as quick as you can and, uh, and reapply. And I think that's the, the best we're going to be able to do. So the last question I have for today comes from Hugo and he says, I've been sharpening my saws, mostly rip, but even with my two different saw set tools, I can't offset them enough. Let's say uh, when I'm doing uh, 10 to 14 teeth per inch, I have two different sets with two different sizes of hammer. So I have one with a narrow hammer, but a friend of mine at Hartwood school used a saw rest. His saw was splendid while mine was getting stuck in the green timber. He did not have the tool with him. So I don't know exactly what to look for. Can you shed any light? So uh, I want to address a couple of things. First, the fact that you're having trouble getting enough set on a 10 to 14 point saw with the saw sets that you have, um, I think you need to adjust the setting on your saw sets because you should have no problem getting enough set in those 10 to 14 point per inch saws with any of the commercial saw sets that are readily available. They're all made for saws in that size. Most commercial plier type saw sets have um, the ability to adjust the anvil so that you can add or remove so that so that you can add differing amounts of set some of them have numbers on them that say you know the nut that you would set to the number of teeth per inch but many also have other adjustments on them that even at that tooth that particular tooth per inch you can adjust the amount of set that it provides. Um, for example, my I have a, a, a clone, It's it's a unmarked clone of a Stanley 42W saw set. And it has two adjustments on it. The first adjusts the anvil so that when the hammer pushes down on the tooth, it makes a bend in the tooth at the right height on the tooth. But that particular setting with the numbers on it four teeth per inch does not adjust the actual amount of set. It just adjusts where on the tooth that set is applied because ideally you want that set to be applied to approximately the top half to third of the tooth. You don't want the entire tooth set. So that's what adjusting that anvil typically does is adjust where on the tooth that the set is going to be applied. And that's what those numbers mean. But typically, most sets have another setting as well. At least mine does, and others that I I have seen also have this, where you can actually adjust the amount of set that it puts in. I had a um, a distant triumph saw set that had both of these adjustments, and the Stanley two W the forty two W clone that I have now also has both settings. So you may need to inspect and play with your saw set a little bit more to see, uh, because you should not have any problem, most saw sets are capable of oversetting the saw teeth, so you should not have any problem getting the r- r- amount of set that you need on a 10 to 14 point saw with the commercially available plier type saw sets. Now, uh, if you still want to look into a saw rest, um they are available they're they're you're not going to find them that easily most of the time you'll find them on the old tools market um you can make them they're not complicated pieces of equipment um sometimes they're called saw wrenches um but essentially what a saw rest is is a a hunk of metal that has a a kerf cut in it for lack of a better word a slot Um, At the end of that slot or that kerf, there's usually a hole, a small hole. Um, And the idea is you take that slot and you slide it over the top of the saw blade over the teeth. And you position the tooth so that it's inside the hole on saw rest. And you position where where the area where the kerf or slot meets the hole, you position that shoulder at the height on the tooth where you want to apply the set. And then you manually bend the tooth using that saw wrenches or saw rest as a lever to just bend the tooth. Um, they work, they take a very practiced hand to work well. Um, I have used them. They are very inconsistent. If you are not that practiced with them, um, and they are also capable very easily of breaking teeth off because there's no stop like there is in a, a hammer and anvil style, plier style saw set. Um, with a saw wrench, it's very easy to over bend a tooth, um, and it's very easy to be very inconsistent with the amount of set that you apply to each tooth, so that your teeth are not set consistently. So um, unless you're willing to put in a lot of time to practice with them um, and understand how they work and, and how much set you put in, um, which is going to be different for every saw that, that you sharpen and set with them, um, it's not something I recommend if you're just getting started in, in saw sharpening. Uh, the plier type sets are by far the easiest to use and there's no reason you shouldn't be able to get enough set in your saws with those. Um, I Understand from your question that you are working in greenwood, and that is going to require uh, quite a bit more set than dry drywood, um, but working with 14 teeth per inch, that's kind of a fine saw for working in greenwood, um, so I, I would probably be looking for something closer to that 10 points per inch that you originally mentioned uh, for working in greenwood. Uh, but yeah, your, your sets should be able to put in enough set in the teeth to handle that green wood. So, uh, see if you can find, uh, some better explanation of the, the functions of the type of the set that you're using. I'm sure there's some instructions somewhere online that you can find, um, or send me a picture of the, the sets that you're using and I'll see if I can, uh, Clarify how you would make those two separate adjustments because I I believe most sets will allow you to make that adjustment um, two separate adjustments uh, So that you can adjust where on the tooth the the set actually bends the tooth um, As well as how much set it puts into that tooth So that's all the questions I received for this week as always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is going to be a brief discussion on the proper use of reference surfaces. Um, and I see... I'll often see discussion of reference surfaces or, or datum surfaces as they're sometimes referred to, um, and and sometimes there's some confusion about how reference surfaces should be used or, or what surfaces should actually be the reference surface. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today is, is how we properly use reference surfaces um, because... You can understand how reference surfaces work or the basics of how reference surfaces work. But if you're using those references improperly, it's not going to, you're not going to get the results that you want, and you're still going to be finding inaccuracies in your work that you may not be able to pinpoint where they're coming from. So um, let's talk about what a reference surface is first. So earlier um, in the show on one of the uh, on Jay's question about his workbench legs, I mentioned um, planing two surfaces flat and square to each other. So in a in a machine focused shop or if you're milling your lumber with with machines, you're typically going to S4S or surface four sides of your stock. So that means you're going to run one face over the joiner to get it flat Um, Then you're going to run one edge over the joiner with that flat face up against the fence of the joiner to get the first edge flat as well as 90 degrees square to the first flat face. Then you'll take that material and, you know, run it through the planer to get it um, down to thickness and then you'll run it over your table saw, through your table saw to rip it to width and get the second edge square and parallel to the first edge. When you prepare lumber this way, you essentially have four surfaces that are flat, square, and parallel to each other. So you can take those and you can you know, run a square off any one of those edges. You can... Um, run a marking gauge on any one of those edges. You can put any one of those edges or faces against the fence of a table saw or a a crosscut sled or whatever. And most of the time you're going to end up with acceptable results. Well, when we work by hand, we try not to rely on that same method of work because uh, we're typically not working to that level of precision, and I don't want to say we're not working to that level of, of precision, even though I just did um, because we are but we're working to that level a little bit differently um, and and using reference surfaces is actually a good practice for working with machines as well um, It's just that most people tend not to do it because most um, most resources when they teach woodworking and milling you know using machines, Don't worry about reference surfaces, Um, and they just don't teach it, but it is a good practice to get into, even if you work with machines. So when we talk about reference surfaces, we're essentially talking about when you mill up your boards, you're going to use one face and one edge as your reference all the time. So you would plane one face flat, and you would plane one edge straight and square to that flat face. And that's it. You still may plane that board to thickness, but you would not use that second face as your reference surface. Similarly, you may still rip your board to width and plane it straight and parallel, or as parallel as you you can get it, to that first straight square edge. But you would not use that second edge as a reference surface. You would use your initial straight uh, planed edge and flat planed face as your initial reference surfaces because you spend a lot of time and you do a lot of work to get that first face perfectly flat and that first edge perfectly straight and square to your first face so you put a mark on those sometimes called data marks and it could be you know traditional reference marks Um, It could be numbers. It could be arrows. It could be little swirlies or smiley faces or whatever. I don't care what kind of mark you use, but you need to mark the flat reference face and you need to uh, mark the straight reference edge that is square to that flat reference face. Moving forward, once you start to do your joinery, you should not be referencing a square or a marking gauge or anything of that nature off of any other face or edge except those that have the pencil marks on them or chalk marks or whatever you're using to mark those reference faces. The reason being, if that second face is not perfectly parallel to the first face, let's say you run it through a power planer and your heads are just ever so slightly off parallel from the uh, from the bed of the planer, or you used a marking gauge and planed to thickness with a hand plane, but you you weren't dead on perfect. Well, if you reference a square off both of those faces, chances are when you square around that board, let's say to make a a, a tenon shoulder, if those two faces are not perfectly parallel or if the two edges are not perfectly parallel and both perfectly square to, to both faces, then when you transfer that knife line all the way around on four sides of that board, when you get to your final corner, it's not going to line up and you're going to wonder why. On the other hand, if you only reference your square off of that single reference face, or the single reference edge when you transfer that line all the way around your knife line will meet up on your last uh, on your last scribe now it may not be perfectly square to the non-reference edge or non-reference face but that shouldn't matter in the final piece and that is where we have to decide what face is going to be the most important and make that the reference face or reference edge. So let's get back to the table for a minute, the uh, the workbench that we were talking about earlier. I mentioned using the two inside faces of that leg as references. Now, you might think, well, that doesn't make any sense. The show faces are on the outside. So you would want those to be nice and perfect, wouldn't you? You know, that that would make the most sense to be the, the reference because that's going to be the pretty face. Um, and that is often what people will will recommend is that you use the show face as your reference face. The problem is um, if we go back to that example of the workbench, if we use the outside faces of that leg as our reference face and reference edge, and we run our square off of those. If the inside faces are not perfectly square or perfectly flat um, to those outside faces, we're essentially marking our joinery based on faces that aren't going to receive that joinery. So if the non-reference faces in this example, the two inside faces, um, are not quite right, when we go to assemble that workbench base, the stretchers may end up putting some twist into the workbench base or they may end up not all at the same height. You know, maybe one is a 32nd or a 16th of an inch lower than the other one and and things don't seem to line up just right. And that's because we're, in, in that example, we're marking our joinery off of a face that's not actually receiving the joinery. So in the example of something like a workbench base, a table, leg, um, something along those lines, I always, 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 always make my reference faces the two faces that will receive the tenons from the stretchers, the joinery surfaces. Because I know if the two inside faces of my table legs are flat and square to each other, and if I make my tenon shoulders uh, shoulder to shoulder distance on all of my stretchers, uh, my parallel stretchers, exactly the same. So if my front and back stretcher have the exact same shoulder to shoulder distance, and my uh, two side stretchers have the exact same shoulder to shoulder distance, I know when I assemble that table base, it is going to, it should be, in theory, if my stock was prepared correctly and my shoulder to shoulder distances are in fact the same. In theory, that table base should assemble perfectly square and I shouldn't have to mess around with anything. And that's exactly what I want. The outside faces may not be perfect and that doesn't matter because they're not being used for anything but show. So they can just be planed up to look pretty, but they don't necessarily have to be perfectly flat, perfectly square because they are not going to impact the joinery or the assembly of the piece at all. Similarly, let's think about something like a cabinet door. Uh, I would do the same thing. The joinery surfaces, the surface that's going to have the groove plowed in it for the panel. It's the same surface that's going to have the mortise and the tenons made on it. Um, I am going to use that face, that inside edge of the door, as my reference edge. What about the reference face? This one may not seem as obvious, and you might say, well, just make the outside face the reference face because, um, you know, that, that's going to be the show face. And so it makes the most sense. You want everything to flush up on the outside face. But in my case, or what I would rather do is use the inside face of the door as the reference face. And my reasoning is when I close that door, the inside face of the cabinet door needs to lay perfectly flat. Because when I close that door, it's going to lay against a hard stop, whether that stop is is an applied piece of wood for the door to stop against, or a shelf, um, or if it's an overlay door, you know the flat face frame of the cabinet. That outside or inside face of the door needs to be flat. The outside face just needs to appear flat, so I can plane any discrepancy, um, you know, in where the, the tendon shoulder meets the face of, uh, where the, where the two rails and styles come and meet each other at that junction, I can plane that to make it look pretty after the door is assembled. But if I assemble that door and there's a, a twist in the back face and the front face is flat, um, that door is not going to close properly. And it's not going to sit right when it's closed. So to me, in a cabinet door, the most important face is the face that's gonna be on the inside of the cabinet, at least in terms of the joinery and the reference faces. Um, I will choose my stock so that the prettiest face is on the outside, but that's different from choosing the reference face, which is what we would use for marking out our joinery. So I'm always going to choose my reference face based upon what is the most important face or the joinery. So that's how I address um, a, a cabinet door. How about a drawer? We're going to make some dovetails. Similar situation. My reference faces, my reference edge is typically going to be the bottom edge of the drawer, uh, the drawer sides and drawer front because I need those grooves for the drawer bottom to line up when the drawer is assembled. So I'm gonna lay everything out from the bottom edge of the drawer. Similarly, I'm going to use the inside face of those drawer parts as my reference surface because that section, the inside face of that drawer needs to come together square when I assemble that drawer. So I wanna lay all my joinery out off of the inside face of the drawer. If the outside of the drawer is a little bit off, I can plane it to fit afterwards, but I cannot make any adjustments to the inside if there are gaps and there are problems um, when I go to assemble that drawer. So I always make my inside faces of drawers my references, inside face and the bottom edge. So you should kind of see a theme going here, is that I'm, I'm basing my references always off of where my joinery is going to be most important. There are times when you may want to use an off face as a reference, but I would say there are are few and far between. Most of the time, what's going to be important in terms of layout of joinery and and using your, your squares and your gauges is going to be the surface that receives the joinery. And that's a good rule of thumb to follow. Uh, case sides, when I build case sides, and this is, this is one, I, li- I like this example because this one is often a, a point of contention. I've heard people say that when you build a case, like a, let's say a chest of drawers or something like that, that your reference face should always be the outside of the case, the outside face of the, of the case sides. And I've always questioned this, and I've never gotten a clear answer why that's a good idea. Um, and the only the only logical explanation I've I've gotten was that well, the inside because the inside of the case doesn't need to be planed um, doesn't need to be plain to look nice, and a lot of times it wasn't in in period work. And I get where that's coming from. I have seen chests of drawers and cases where the inside of the case was not planed really well. Um, it may have been just dressed with a you know, a triplane real quickly or a four plane. But I think what's interesting is in these cases you usually it usually appears as if at least part of that where the joinery was was planed to some extent so that the joinery would close better. My argument is to to this practice um, is that your joinery, if you don't plane the inside of that case flat, at least, maybe doesn't need to be pretty. There may be some tear out. There may be some um, plane tracks, but if you don't at least plane the inside of that case flat and square, you're going to have issues when it comes to closing up your joinery. So, um, I, once again, always make the inside face of a case, my reference surface, because that's where my joinery is going to be. Um, and I find that if I can get the inside of that case flat, it helps me immensely with laying out my joinery and assembling my case. The outside of the case just has to look pretty. So I put the pretty grain on the outside and I put the, uh, the plainer grain on the inside, uh, but I still make sure that the inside face of that casework is plain flat um, so that it helps me to lay out good accurate joinery. So that's essentially um, you know my my points on uh, on this topic um, is to to understand not just what a reference, Face or reference edge is i think that's pretty well understood among most people and it's an easy concept to grasp for most beginners if you just take a couple of minutes to explain it that you've got one flat face and one straight square edge and those are the only two places you ever reference your square or your marking gauge etc off of but where the conversation usually never seems to go or or at least gets glossed over is which one of those faces and which one of those edges should we be using as that reference face or reference edge. And in my opinion, at least it's not arbitrary. Um, and uh, you know, you need to put some thought into which face is going to be the reference face and which edge is going to be the reference edge, not based upon the appearance of those faces and edges, but upon the actual placement in the work of those faces and edges and how are they going to relate to any joinery that you may have to cut. And I think if you really think about that before you start to lay out and cut your joinery, um, I think what you'll find is that your joinery will improve um, if if you're making sure that you are using those reference faces and edges to lay out your joinery and that those reference faces and edges are the ones that are actually going to receive the joinery. And I think that's an important point that is often glossed over. And I think if you keep that in mind, um, your joinery will in fact improve. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website, at brfinewoodworking.com htt034 In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts Finally, if you'd like to support the show you can become a supporter on Patreon or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support So thanks again for listening and until next time, stay sharp everybody.